Nehemiah, starting at 7. We have a lot to talk about today. We're covering Nehemiah chapter 7 through 9. And so um, we are coming to the end of the book of Nehemiah. We're just three chapters away after this uh, Sunday, three chapters away from bringing this series to a close. So just to do a quick recap uh, from chapters 1 through 6, the nation of Israel rebelled against God and their rebellion led them to captivity and exile from their homeland. Over a century has passed and their homeland of Israel is in shambles. Its walls are destroyed, but the Lord put it on the heart of Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. We remember God gave Nehemiah favor with the king uh, and the resources to build the wall. The nation sees the vision and they begin to build. We remember how Nehemiah and the nation, they face opposition, not only from the outside, but the outside opposition brings division within the nation. But despite the opposition, the division and the hardship, the wall that would take someone years to build is built in 52 days. The wall is finished. The rest of the nation now are welcome to come back home to their homeland. And so that is from chapters 1 through 6. And so here we are in Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to read the first few verses because there are 73 verses in this chapter. And we will not read all 73 unless you plan on staying here till 5. Nehemiah chapter 7, the first few verses, it says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hanani, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bars of the doors. Appoint the guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at, the, some at their guards' post and some at their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel and Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Belsham, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, Bayana. The first point I want to make out of this, and we're going to read a few more verses later on throughout the message from chapter 7, but the first point I want us to recognize is that we are one. We are one. I encourage you to read the rest of this, and like I said, we're going to read a few verses uh, from this chapter here and there. But Nehemiah 7, it gives us a list of names of people who returned after the wall was built. There are hundreds of thousands of people. I'm just going to read a verse from a couple verses that I want you to see. Nehemiah 7, and I believe it's at verse 8, just so you can get an understanding. It says, the number of men of the people of Israel, and then it says, the sons of Perash were 2,000, 
172. Verse 9, it says, The son of Shephatiah were set were 372. So we're seeing that these were groups of people that came in numbers, large numbers. There are hundreds and thousands of people making their way back home to their homeland. And when you read this, you'll see that, again, there are large groups that made up of different tribes. Groups made of different tribes, different backgrounds, different cultural differences. People who came in large numbers, people who came in small numbers. There are people in this group that will be considered higher class financially and some people that are considered lower class. There are people of different generations, young and old. There's male and female. By the time you get all the way down to Nehemiah 766, it says that there were over 42,000 people, not counting their servants, which were 7,337, according to verse 67. So that means there were probably about 50,000 people coming back home. When you read verse 7 through 63, it tells us that there were different families who came, different families of different cultural backgrounds. Yet, when you get to the end of this chapter, Verse 73, it stands out to me. Verse 7, verse 7, verse 73, chapter 7, verse 73, it says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. When the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Notice how after all the names were called and recognized. Now, I read verses 8 and 9, and it tells you the sons of so-and-so were this many, and the sons of so-and-so were that many. That's going to keep going all the way down to verse 63. So many different names are called. So many different numbers are called. But by the time you get to the end of this chapter, it ends with the people of Israel. Notice how, again, it ends with all Israel. So that means no matter what background they had, no matter where they were financially or socially, if their lineage pointed back to Israel and Abraham, they were considered Israelites. They were still all one family. Different names, different backgrounds, different cultures, different ways of life. Yet at the end of this chapter, in other words, at the end of the day, they were still called all Israel. Why am I saying this? Because the body of Christ, the family of God, the Christian faith is made up of several denominations. Several denominations with millions of members, hundreds of thousands of congregations. Some of you may have come from different denominations. Some of you may have come from the Baptist Church or the Episcopalian Church, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Church of God in Christ, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or the Assemblies of God. Some of you may have come from non-denominational backgrounds, but the family of God is made up of fellowships of churches with different styles of worship, different service structures, but at the end of the day, if you believe the gospel in your heart and you have surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, you are a part of one family. And that's why personally, personally, I don't have an issue with denominations. Some people are not necessarily fond of denominations because it seems to bring division. But when you read this passage, 
When you read this passage, the nation is made up of several tribes of walks of life. And that's really what a denomination is supposed to be within the body of Christ. It's a tribe. It's a tribe within the nation. It's a body part within the body of Christ. It's a color within the rainbow. When you see a rainbow, we don't say, oh, goodness, there's red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, violet in the sky today. We just say it's a rainbow. Because the rainbow covers all the colors. It's not the existence of the denomination that causes division. It's the view of their existence that brings division. When a denomination allows the different preferences in the culture to hinder them from serving with others, that's when it brings division. So how do you know if you can fellowship with someone of a a different denomination? you got to review their essentials. If a denomination is Bible-based and the gospel of Jesus Christ serves as the foundation on which they stand upon, if they believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that he is one God eternally existing in three equal persons, if they believe that all scripture is true, God breathed by the Holy Spirit and points to Jesus as God, if they believe in the virgin birth of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which ultimately reveals the sinless life of Jesus, the sacrificial death, burial, bodily resurrection, and the second coming. If they believe that heaven is a place for believers in Jesus and serves as a holding place until New Jerusalem, and that hell is a place for those who reject the gospel and serves as a holding place until the lake of fire. If they believe that these are real places, angels are real, demons are real, the devil is a real being who seeks to hinder believers from growing in their faith and seeks to hinder the gospel from going forth. If they believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman, there are several essentials that make up the Christian faith. And if they believe the gospel and all these essentials, we should see them as family. We should see them as family. They are a part of the family of God with different styles of worship. They're part of the family of God with a different service structure on Sunday. They may dance to different music. They may worship differently, but at the end of the day, we're one body. So no matter what denomination you grew up in, if you surrender to Jesus, you are part of the family of God. You are a Christian. I didn't mention all the essentials, and you have to come to We Are Coastal for that. There's several more essentials that we believe, so just come on to We Are Coastal and become a member. And then, honestly, so again, I I don't have an issue with denominations. Some of you may totally disagree with me. And you may have some choice words and emails to send. I have two emails to reach out. If you want to talk to me about it, you can reach out to me at david at gocoastal.org or jesse at gocoastal. I'll be happy to talk with you. I'll be happy to talk with you. We're one family. Incredible. Jesse isn't here, is he? Okay. So yeah, reach out to me at jesse at gocoastal. We're one big family through Jesus Christ. I want to go to the next chapter, Nehemiah 8, 1. It says, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So the Bible says that, All walks of life, they came together and stood as one man. So that's a picture of unity. This is a day of celebration. This is a day because the nation has come home. This is a fresh start for them. This is a new beginning. But before the nation does anything, before they move forward and living and serving in their home, Nehemiah 
wants to take time for them to understand the authority that they live under, the authority that they're serving under. So he gathers them all together to make something clear. A point that I want to make is my next point. God's word is our authority. That's what unifies us. That's what all of us have in common. No matter what denomination or culture you come from, that's what unifies the body of Christ. Outside of the gospel, it is God's word. That is our authority. I'm going to read the first few verses of Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, all the people, again, it says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Verse 2 says, so all the priests, or so Ezra the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the, man, the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Metatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, and Michelle, and Melchijah, and Hashem, and Heshbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was above all the people. And as he opened it and stood, the people, all the people stood. Verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So again, the word of God is our authority. The word of God is read to all the people. The word of God reminds us of who God is. He is holy. He is sinless. The word of God reminds us uh, and it reveals God's standard of righteous living. God's word keeps us humble, reminding us that we are sinful and we can't grow in our faith with our own strength. But through the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, it teaches us that we need one another. As I stated earlier, those who surrender to Jesus are part of the family of Christ. And as a family in Christ, we need to lean on one another. The law of Moses was shared to all the people. And I like verse 7 and 8 because earlier it says that the people were attentive. They heard the word and they were attentive. But verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, it says, also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Echab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jehoshabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly that gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So these men went among the people, helping them understand the word of God. That's what a family in Christ looks like. That's what the pastor and the elders and the deacons and the small group leaders are here for. Because there are things in scripture that we just will not understand. There are things in scripture that are worded in ways that just don't seem clear to us. But that's what the leadership is here for. 
We're here to talk to you and walk with you through spiritual growth. The word of God wasn't just read that day as a document, but they feasted on it. These men, they went around to all the people and they read the law so that people could understand it. That means they took time to unpack certain passages. They took the time to answer certain questions so that the people wouldn't just hear God's word and walk away, but that they would feast on it and let it soak in their hearts. You have leaders in this church who are here to walk with you in your journey of sanctification, to walk with you so you can grow in your walk with the Lord. You have small group leaders who are here to help you in the process of growth. So don't just hear the sermon on Sunday and leave, but take the time to feast on it in your small groups. Take the time to meet with an elder. Take the time to meet with the leader and ask the questions. I did not understand what you said Sunday. Help me understand this. Reach out to an elder or deacon and ask the question so that we can grow together. As a Christian church, we're called to feast on God's word so that we can grow in our faith. That's the purpose of God's word. That's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why we need the leadership, so that you can walk away equipped. So because the word of God breathes, it breathes, it gives life. It's uplifting, it's encouraging. It's encouraging. Sometimes we hear that word uplifting or encouraging and we think of flattery. God's word is encouraging. There's a difference between encouragement and flattery. There's a difference between encouragement and flattery. Flattery is being told what you want to hear, whether it's true or not. Encouragement is being told what you need to hear, whether you like it or not. When someone pulls you to the side in private and says, hey, I noticed you said or you did something that doesn't line up with the word of God. Let's pray about this. Let's really sit and talk about that. That's encouragement. Encouragement pushes us to grow. Flattery keeps us in one place forever. And so God did not give us his word to flatter us, but to encourage us. So when the law was read that day, it was not to flatter the people. It was for them to recognize where they stood in the eyes of God and how to grow from there. God's word gives us direction on how to live. Because as believers, we're called to live a certain way, which brings me to the next point. We are called to be set apart. We are called to be set apart. The next few verses of Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah 8, verses 9 through 12. It says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying be quiet for this day is holy do not be grieved 
And all the people went their way and ate and drank and sent portions and, ma- and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So there's a key word I want us to focus on that we just read. That's the word holy. And so now I want to go to the next chapter and I'm going to bring this all together. The next chapter, the first few verses of chapter nine. And we're going to tie all again, tie it all together after it's read. First chapters of, or first verses of chapter nine. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sadcloth and the earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. So, again, to be holy is to be set apart. So in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, we see how uh, they made that day separate from all the other days. That means that day was holy. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, they separated themselves from other nations. To be holy in the eyes of God is to be set apart from the world. Chapter 9, verse 2, it says they stood apart from foreign nations. So that means they were not to indulge in those activities. Something I want you to pay attention to and recognize is that some of these nations were not far in location. They're called foreign nations, but they were not far. Many of them weren't far in location. Some of them were just surrounding areas. So technically, they were considered foreign because of the distance, because though they were foreign, they were not of the nation. But I believe God wanted us to focus on something deeper than that. It wasn't about location. He wanted Israel to consider outside nation, them other foreign nations foreign because of their lifestyle, not just the location. I believe God wanted the immoral lifestyle of these other nations to be foreign to his people. So no matter how close they were to each other in location, I believe God wanted them to be so spiritually far apart that one could spot the lifestyle difference from miles away. So when we surrender to Jesus, we're brought into the family of God and we are to live as a nation of believers. But a foreign nation to us would be the world, those who reject the gospel. That would be a foreign nation to us. Yet, like the nation of Israel, we're surrounded by foreign nations. We're surrounded by foreign nations, whether it's in your job or in your neighborhood, whether it be someone even in your own biological family. We are a nation of believers surrounded by nations of other unbelievers in the secular world. But God is calling for us to be far apart. In our lifestyle, no matter how close we are, we're supposed to be far apart in our life. So, so that brings me back to God's word. God's word teaches us how to live a life of holiness, and he teaches us what that looks like. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it sums up what a lifestyle of holiness looks like. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation, 
if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So all through scripture, God wants us to see what a lifestyle of holiness looks like. We just did a series on 1 John a few months ago. And 1 John, the purpose of that book was to make a distinction between believers and unbelievers. A believer is filled with the Holy Spirit who guides us in the path of righteousness and holy living. The Holy Spirit brings conviction when we fall short and and from conviction uh, so that we can grieve of our sin and repent. An unbeliever is not filled with the Holy Spirit and will never repent because they don't see anything wrong with what they did. They'll justify their sin. So when we read Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, we see that the nation of Israel truly believed in the God of the scriptures because when they heard the law, they recognized they were sinners and they grieved over their sin. They felt so much conviction. The Bible says that they wept over their sin. That is the heart of a true believer. When we mess up, we should feel grieved because we have failed to display our love for Jesus Christ. We should feel grieved over our sin. But I want you to notice something else. Nehemiah chapter 8 verses 9 through 12, it says the people sinned against God. They were grieved over their sin. But then the leadership tells all the people to get up and celebrate. What are they going to celebrate after hearing how sinful they are? They can actually go celebrate the fact that they felt convicted and that they were not condemned. That's worth celebrating. When we repent, we can celebrate the fact that we are convicted and not condemned. A few months ago, I preached from the book of Jonah, and I wanted you all to understand the difference. And I want to do that again today. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is the Holy Spirit reminding us of the standard of Christ. It's a weight of recognition of our sin. God forgives us, and then we move on. That's conviction. But condemnation is the finish line. When you've reached the finish line, there's nothing left to be done. It's too late to change. It's too late to move on. It's too late to grow. Condemnation is finding your identity in your sin. Condemnation says this is who I am, and there's nothing more that can be done. Condemnation puts it on you to fix it. Condemnation says you need to get this right. You need to get yourself together. You need to redeem yourself. Condemnation is completely focused on self. And anything that causes you to focus on self is not from God. It's not from God. It's from the devil. The devil wants every believer to feel condemned because condemnation is what separates us from God. If a Christian can feel separated, then they'll walk in rebellion. If a Christian can feel separated, they'll avoid fellowship with other believers. They'll avoid serving. They'll avoid connecting, which ultimately will hinder their growth in Christ. It's about the feeling. It's about the feeling. The devil is not dumb. He's not dumb. He knows that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He knows that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
But if he can whisper lies to make a believer feel like they're separated, he'll count that as a win. But the good news is that the devil is a liar. If you're in Christ, you are no longer condemned. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, 1 there. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a difference between condemnation and conviction. So again, condemnation causes us to focus completely on ourselves, but conviction causes us to focus on Jesus. Conviction is the recognition of our weakness, but it's also the recognition of God's strength. It's when we see our wrong and we depend on God to purify us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit way of letting you know it's not too late. It's not too late to start fresh. It's not too late to grow in your faith. And that's what the Israelites are telling. The Israelite leadership is telling the nation who sin, go your way. That's what God is saying to his people. Go your way. You are forgiven. You are restored. You know, some of us have made mistakes and it seems as if they were too big for God to forgive. They were too great for God to forgive. It was too large for you to move on. But God is a forgiving God. He will take a sinner and transform them and save their souls. And if he can do that with a non-believer, why couldn't he do that with one of his children? Some of us are like the Israelites. We've messed up. We've repented. We've gone through counseling. And now here we are trying to figure out how to move forward. But just as the leader spoke to the nation, God is saying, you're forgiven. Go your way. You may need a pastor or a small group leader to grab you by the hand, a spouse or a friend to walk with you and moving forward. But at the end of the day, God says, go your way. Go serve. Go grow in your faith. doesn't matter how far you fall and God is forgiving. The people were grieved over their sin, but God did not want them to live in it because he's a God of forgiveness. He's a God of mercy. They went and they celebrated the mercy of God. They grieved over their sin, but God forgave them and they celebrated. And that's all this happened in chapter 8. All this happened in chapter 8. They they repented, they grieved, they repented, and then they celebrated the mercy of God. But then here in chapter 9, they're grieved over their sin again. They just celebrated in chapter 8, but now they're grieving again. Over their sin again in chapter 9. What is this selling us? What we're seeing is how a lifestyle of holiness is a pattern of repentance and celebration of the mercy of God. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing a pattern. A real believer will repent. We sin every day. We mess up every day. But a real believer will repent as often as they sin. And they will celebrate the mercy of God as often as they repent and grieve. We will constantly sin because it's in our nature. But God will always forgive us. And we should always repent and celebrate the mercy and the grace of God. I want us to look. I'm going to read a little bit more in chapter 8. Because it gives us a deeper understanding of this pattern of repentance and celebration. Which brings me to my last point. 
We need praise. We need praise. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting at verse 13. It says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olives, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths. As it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in their courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square, the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths and lived. In the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to the day of the people of Israel, had, done, had not done so. And there was a great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days. And one and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. The feast was a moment for them to look back. The feast was a moment for them to look in. The feast was a moment for them to look forward. They looked back at what the Lord had done. They looked inward to examine themselves, praying that God would clean their heart. That's praise. That's worship. So we come together, we praise and we worship in this several different forms. We come and we worship, sing praise to the Lord. People lift their hands. They stand and they reflect. We praise and we worship. It goes beyond song, the songs that we sing, the lifting of our hands. But we praise God through our giving. We praise God even in this moment as we're preaching and teaching and notes are being taken. We praise God in how we live. Worship is a lifestyle. In this passage, chapters 8 and 9, praise is expressed not only in celebration, but even in repentance. When we repent, we're honoring God. We're honoring his holiness. We're honoring his righteousness. We're honoring his wisdom. We're honoring his knowledge. And that's why we always start prayer with God. Because when we look at God, it makes us examine ourselves to see our own Flaws. So when we examine ourselves and we see our flaws, that's when we grieve over the sin that we've committed. Then we rejoice over the mercy of God. And this means that repentance is also a form of praise and worship. Praise is a time for us to look back. It's a time when we celebrate the mercy of God and look at how good he's been to us. When we look back and remember over the times that he's kept us from the traps of the enemy, there's relationships that we should have, that we gotten in, that we shouldn't have even been involved in, but he severed it. Friends that we shouldn't have hung around, but God ended those relationships. We sin constantly. 
But repentance causes us to praise God for his forgiveness and his mercy. And that's what takes place in chapter 9. When we look at chapter 9, it's a feast of booze, but it's also a time of prayer and repentance. Chapter 9, starting at verse 6, it says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, and the earth, and all that is on it, the seas, and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur and the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his hand. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made your name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them. So that they were, when they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. So while they are celebrating, they are looking back at what God has done. They look back, they look inward. That sounds like communion. Communion is when we take the time to reflect on the gospel. We look inward to examine our hearts, and then we look forward to when sin will be non-existent. Praise is a lifestyle. What we are seeing is a form of praise and worship, and I said it comes in different forms. Praise is a lifestyle, and God calls us to praise and worship because it's a holy lifestyle. It's part of a holy lifestyle. He calls us to be holy because he's holy. He calls us to be righteous because he's righteous. When you go back to Nehemiah 8, the Israelites, they stood in unity as one man at the water gate. The water gate was a place of purification for the people that needed washing. Many people, when they came to the water gate, they washed themselves and they rinsed off before they went into corporate worship. But in this case, when you read Nehemiah 7 through 9, the nation stood at the water gate, not only because they were filthy on the outside, but because they were filthy on the inside. They stood at the water gate because there was sin in their heart. They stood in unity as one man full of sin. The one thing that every human being on the planet has in common, whether you are a Christian or not, every human being on the planet deserves the wrath of a holy God. This holy God who made us in his image, made us in his likeness. God calls us to be holy as he's holy and righteous as he's righteous, but we stood as one man rebelling against God. We stood as one man seeking to live life on our own terms. And our rebellion brought sin into the world, sin consumed everything that crossed its path. 
What is sin? Sin is a nasty, toxic disease. It's an infection with symptoms, symptoms like terrorism, murder, theft, robbery, gossip and deceit, racism, sexism. Sin infected all humanity, every tongue, tribe, and nation that made up the human race was infected with this filthy disease. So when we get to Nehemiah 8, and we see the Israelites standing as one man by the water gate. We are seeing a picture of the human race infected by sin in need of washing. Sin, the disease that kept our hearts in rebellious state against God. It separated us from God and it put us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But God still loved us. He loved us so much that while we stood as one man in rebellion against him, he sent his son to live as one man in the earth. This one man lived among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten son of the father full of grace and truth. Truth, which means this one man did not come to this earth to flatter us, but to encourage us. Sometimes his encouraging words came in the form of rebuke or correction, but it was given so that we may grow and know the Father. But because we were infected with sin and a desire to be flattered and even exalted, we didn't want to hear his words of encouragement. And so the human race stood as one man and persecuted this one man, not knowing that the persecution was playing a part in the fulfillment of the father's plan to save us from the penalty of sin. They beat him and they spit in his face. They whipped the flesh off his back and they mocked him. Back to Nehemiah 8. The nation stood as one man and the law was read by Ezra. In order for the law to be handled in this way, one had to be a priest. Ezra was a priest. A priest was the one to set the example of holy living. A priest had to stand before God in the temple without sin in their heart. And just as the law could only be read by a priest, the law could only be fulfilled by a priest. The only way a man could stand before God and face his wrath was if he was a sinless priest. Even Ezra had to repent from time to time because he was still a man with human desires and a human nature and a sin nature. And so we needed a priest who could understand what we go through without falling into temptation. A priest who could not just read the law but fulfill the law without falling into temptation. So it makes sense why the writer says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God the Father sent his Son to live among us a sinless life. He was tempted at all points, but never sinned. He lived a life of a sinless priest. In Nehemiah 8, the Israelites stood as one man, and the law was read. But in order for the law to be read, and in order for the people to see Ezra and hear his words, and in order for them to be drawn to what he said, Ezra had to be lifted up. 
The Bible says that Ezra read the law to all the people, a nation of sinful people. The law was read on a wooden platform that was made for that purpose. One man stands before the people at the place of purification to read the law on a wooden platform. God the Father sent his son to live as one man, not only to read the law, but to fulfill the law. But like Ezra, in order for the human race to see God's son and to be drawn to him and to see the fulfillment of the law, he would have to be lifted up on a wooden platform, a wooden platform we call the cross. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And so while we stood as one man in sin, rebelling against God, one man who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, the purity of God. He became sin so that we might be washed in his innocent, sinless, priestly blood, just as the Israelites stood by the water gate to be washed. Jesus, God the Son, hung on the cross and fulfilled the law by facing the penalty that we deserved. Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might, be, might, be, might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, one man, died on the cross for our sins, taking the penalty that we deserve. He was buried. Three days later, the same man who died bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Nehemiah chapter 8, after hearing the law, the people believed, they repented of their sin, and they surrendered to God. The gospel's been preached. So what do we do after hearing the gospel? After hearing the gospel, the same way the Israelites heard the law, we believe, we surrender to Jesus as Lord, we repent of our sin, and we believe. When you surrender to Jesus as Lord, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And though sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit fills us and guides us in the path of righteousness, brings conviction, not condemnation. And so that's my question to you all as believers. All of us sin, but are you condemning yourself rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to restore you? My question to unbelievers, have you received the gospel? We have leaders who will stand at the altar if you recognize your need for a Savior and you know that you need to surrender to Jesus as Lord, you can come down to the altar and the leaders will pray with you. If you need prayer for anything in any other area of life, the leaders will, will pray with you. We all face hardship. We all face struggles. But the mark of a real Christian 
The mark that the Holy Spirit fills us is the conviction that we feel in the heart of repentance. The word of God is preached. Are we seeing this as a document or are we feasting on it as the people of Israel did? Are we leaning on the leadership of the church, the pastors, the elders, the deacons, the small group leaders to unpack the text that we didn't understand on Sunday morning? Are we just okay with not understanding God's word and we just go from day to day trying to think it might figure out itself as the days go by? And we're wondering why we're not growing in our faith. We have leaders, just as Nehemiah 8 did. They sent leaders out to help the people grow. Are you hungry to grow? Are you willing to grow? Do you desire to grow in your walk with Jesus? Or are you okay where you are? As a believer, we are called to grow in our faith. We will sin all the time. But God is not a condemning God. He does not condemn those who belong to him. As believers, we're forgiven And we can stand in unity as one man because of one man's finished work. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For you are a God of love. You're a God of grace. You're a God.